At any point in time, any established industry, particularly that's regulated, is going to look at new entrants that are doing things differently and be tempted to say distorting and harmful. They don't get it. They don't play by the same rules. Right? But if you take the longer view, that's literally how innovation happens. <laughs> so I think they're actually very positive uh, in, in how they're driving incumbents uh, to work. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard Roger Crandall, the Chairman, President, and CEO of Mass Mutual. Mass Mutual is short for the Massachusetts Mutual Life Insurance Company, and like other players in the insurance industry, it's undergoing significant change. But rather than fight digital disruption, Mass Mutual has embraced it. In this episode, Roger shares his experience of transforming a 170-year-old institution into an industry innovator. He spoke with Pradeep Patiath, a senior partner in Miami and leader in McKinsey's digital financial services practice. Well, good morning, everyone, and good morning to you, Roger. Where are you today, in Boston? Yeah, uh, good morning, Pradeep. I am in uh, Boston this morning where the winter has finally ended and spring has sprung. Well, I'm here from Miami, and uh, we have a range of topics we thought we would just maybe uh, get your perspectives on. And Roger, perhaps a good place to start might be the world has gotten riskier, perhaps some folks would say. We just came out of a long pandemic. We're now seeing a war in Ukraine. And insurance as an industry, as a profession, as a business is all about risk. In fact, insurance lubricates commerce by mitigating risk, lets people move on with their lives by not worrying about risk. Can you comment a little bit in this new, riskier world, what's the role of insurance now? And has it changed versus before? So look, you nailed it. Most people don't wake up in the morning and think about it, but everything from the devices that we're looking at to the coffee we drink to the, the, the breakfast we eat, none of it happens without insurance. You know, literally insurance started on uh, people betting whether ships were going to return <laughs> from uh, from trading. So in the broader global economy, insurance is, is absolutely, absolutely critical. You know, the corner of the, of the business that we're in is, is around life insurance, which really comes down to helping people with, with several key risks. One is mortality, the risk that effectively you die too young. One is morbidity, uh, the, the, the risk that you get sick or hurt and you can't work uh, and earn an income. And then the other, the other side of mortality is longevity. Uh, we have you know, literally millions of people in America now living into their 80s and 90s and indeed hundreds. Uh, and uh, are you able to live uh, in retirement uh, and have, have the assets and, and, and income you need to live to live well? So we're in that side of the business. And all the assumptions that we've built all of this on have been thrown into some question. First, uh, the first pandemic most of us have seen. There. And then, as you mentioned, geopolitical instability with the biggest one being war in Europe really causing some of the things that the whole uh, system is built on, you know, getting called into question, whether it's access to energy resources, to some metals uh, globally with Russia getting cut off from the West, uh, and then volatility hitting the financial markets as this is all happening in a time when inflation is at a level we really haven't seen since the early, early 1980s. And again, not a lot of market participants around today were actually around mm-hmm. in the markets in the 70s and 80s at that point. So I think it is a very challenging time from that side. On the other hand, 
Mass Mutual is a mutual company. We were founded back in 1851 and uh, we're still owned by our policyholders. And just had a board meeting in the last couple of days and meeting with my executive team. And one of the things we talked about was, this is bad, but you know, we had the Civil War early in our company's history in the United States. We had World War I, World War II. We had the Cold War. We had the Cuban Missile Crisis. We had the inflation of the 70s, uh, the Volcker Recession that broke the back of that. We had the rise of the dollar as the, the predominant global reserve currency, the leaving the gold standard, the creation of petrodollars, euro dollars, Bitcoin. So yeah, there's a lot going on right now. But in the context of the history of our company, there's always been a lot going on. There's a lot out there to be worried about and a lot of volatility. Um, but this is, uh, is really the reason our company exists. And Roger, this mutuality, in fact, uh, going back to history, the origin of modern insurance was, in fact, as a mutual, right? Is it your sense that in these turbulent times, a mutual structure is actually perhaps more resilient and perhaps more durable? Yeah, I, I think so. In fact, some of the longest lived corporations or, or of any type in the world are co-ops, Agricultural co-ops, for example, have been around uh, for many, many hundreds of years in many countries. And, and you mentioned insurance, which is built off of the concept of pooling, originally came in through the construct. Again, no one wakes up in the morning and thinks about this stuff, but I would point out a couple of things. Our oldest policyholder is, is typically a woman somewhere between 105 and 115 years old. She's very typically had her policy somewhere between 75 and 95 years Right. So it's, it's, it's always kind of awing to me to, to, to look at our oldest group of policies and think about what the world was like when they were issued. And because it's such a long-term business, having one set of stakeholders, the policyholder customer to drive us is just a huge advantage. The way I describe it is we get to think about a long-term business in a long-term way. So we never have to wake up in the morning and wonder, should we invest in something that might have a longer term payoff? Or should we respond to potentially uh, uh, an equity holder who's got a shorter term time horizon who might say, why don't you return capital to shareholders? And other players in our market that are stock held uh, have, for, for good reasons, they've had to respond to their, to their shareholder demands. The other thing that's very fascinating about it is uh, when you talk to customers, they get it. They're like, wait a second, I am the company? <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's, that's particularly interesting in a world of social media. It's particularly interesting in a world where people are looking to have the companies they do business with aligned with their values and purpose. It's also been very interesting as we talk to our employees about why you want to come and have a career at Mass Mutual. So I think it, it, one of the reasons Mass Mutual has been growing at well above industry trend rates now for, for you know, over 15 years. You've been at the helm, Roger, for nearly 20 years, 17, 18 years. How has the role of you as a leader, CEO, evolved? I think there are a couple of really big things that have played out. One of the biggest is our employees and customers, and this is not irrespective of whether you're a mutual stock company, frankly, public or private, they are now expecting CEOs and companies to have views, right? So for a very, very, very long time, CEOs could say when asked, what is your opinion on fill in the blank? Effectively, not my job. Is it the Milton Friedman article about the purpose of business is to make a profit and to leave everything else to everybody else? And, and that really began to change 
we can talk to different places where it began to change, but certainly the environmental movement as it began uh, in the 60s and 70s. But it really accelerated in, in at least corporate America with the murder of, of uh, George Floyd and uh, questions about, about racism and diversity, equity, and inclusion. So ESG is the big you know, kind of moniker. But it's much, much more difficult now uh, for companies to say, I don't have any comment on that. Our employees are, are asking about it. Uh, policyholders and customers are asking about it. Of course, regulators and politicians are asking about it. So I think one one big change that's happened is that that CEOs need to have a thoughtful way to, to think through that. And you know, the rise of, of technology, the internet, and social media has meant whether you like it or not, the narrative is being written for you in thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of tweets and posts every day. So the days of take your time, put a press release out, write an op-ed in the paper, maybe a letter to the editor was how you would see a response. Now it's real time, uh, all the time. Uh, and and that, uh, that, that's a big change. And it means that hard questions that you might have been able to avoid can get asked. Uh, and if you're not consistent in mission, values, purpose, and actions, someone's going to call you out on it. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but it certainly has changed how leaders at companies need to need to think about things. Yeah, it's almost like computing went from batch to real time and instant. It's almost like CEO leadership has become more real time versus batch, no press releases. And the, the I think that analogy is spot on. Your employees are changing as well as customers are changing. Is it the customer change that's more kind of driving how you have to evolve or is it more uh, the employee side or, or is it just broader? <laughs> well, anyone who doesn't realize it's always about the customer is going to end up losing. But I will say in the day-to-day, engagement with employees is really important. We're sitting here with, in the U.S., unemployment uh, at three and a half percent. The labor market's extraordinarily tight. Um, We're seeing inflation that's driving wage growth, competition for talent. So you may think it's about your employees on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. And it, of course, is because without great employees, you're not going to win. But it's always ultimately about customers. And I think that's one of the things that's making it more difficult because the U.S. is very polarized. There are big issues that that are very divisive in the country. So I think that's made it all the more important to be thoughtful about approaches and where it's important to have uh, an articulated view. There are also times when it's, I think, very reasonable to say we don't have a view on that even if you might have some constituents that are pushing really hard to force you to, to have a view. So it's, it's certainly more complicated than ever before. The other component, Roger, you said in terms of the leadership, tech, digital, it's almost like if you're a financial services CEO and perhaps any CEO, being savvy about tech or at least being literate has become almost a mandatory thing. It's a pretty big topic, digital tech is this a red herring or is this fundamentally going to change the industry and therefore how, how leaders lead these industries? Oh, I, I, I think we're in the midst of the biggest uh, transformation of our industry, I think actually ever. Again, you take a long view of kind of what, what moved the industry around. Uh, it was product and distribution innovation to, make, to meet customer demand. Um, I mean, as you know, we're a, we're a very stable industry. 
you take a look at the top 10 carriers in the United States, this is not an industry that looks all that different from a name perspective than it did you know, well over 100 years ago. But today, technology is what makes all those pieces happen. So our industry was, I think, way behind in digital and technology on, on a couple of sides. One was our regulators were still struggling to catch up when along came really kind of at scale mobile devices and uh, and all the technology that comes with that. Um, consumers' desire to have instantaneous access to everything on a mobile device because they're doing it in other parts of their lives has kind of exploded exploded as well. And it came to our sector the the probably the last, the latest last in financial services for, I think, a pretty simple reason. Most people buy a handful of life insurance policies in their life, buy your first home, or you, you have a child, you start putting together kind of a plan. It's not like you're checking every day. You don't have to look at it the way you look at a 401k plan or look at your bank account. But eventually people are like, wait a second, why am I still doing a paper application like with a pen? Why is it that it's taking me 45 days to go through a full underwriting process? I mean, why is it that I'm not seeing my insurance, life insurance, financial product integrated into my financial view? So all these things were percolating along out there. And then, boom, March of 2020 arrives. We go from the way the world was to the way the world is today. There's a, a common statement that people make that the pandemic accelerated trends that were already in place. That was very true for our industry. So whether it was comfort doing research uh, online, interacting with uh, distribution, uh, financial advisors, agents, or others uh, online, and uh, all of a sudden, I can't send a paramed to your house to take bodily fluids or a fully underwritten life insurance policy. Uh, so that happened at Mass Mutual just as the investments we'd been making to build a fully digital insurance company from First interaction with a client through a machine learning driven underwriting model, you know, ultimately through policy admin and ultimately to paying a claim. We had really just built that. And our big question was, how are we going to drive distribution partners, agents and customers to it? And the pandemic accelerated that mightily. Right? So we've got well over half of our business now running through that platform where we had less than 1% at the end wow. of 2019. And now we're getting pushed um, both by customer demand as well as, and I think this is actually a great thing, new players coming into the market kind of fintechs to continue to make our customer experience better. So our industry is, is catching up. There are a couple of real challenges a lot of companies face. The biggest is because the business is so long-term, there's a lot of legacy platforms sitting out there. And because there's not typically tons of customer interaction on a real-time basis, and because customers don't buy a lot of products from you, and again, deep into the gory actuarial weeds here, but because switching costs grow over time because your mortality costs grow, investing to make the customer experience better on old platforms sometimes doesn't look like it has a really high ROI. The policies which someone wrote at Mass Mutual in the 60s and 70s, they're not leaving because they're sitting on an old platform written on Fortran. <laughs> yeah, it's like your old customer was 1900 years old, right? Exactly. So you've got this, many companies have this spaghetti 
and although there have been a couple who've been successful in growing through uh, through acquisition and consolidation, which is certainly playing out in our industry, there's still just a lot of old policies sitting on old platforms. So we're now in, the, in a huge process of not just writing our new business on these new platforms, providing better customer and agent experience. And the net promoter scores are, are like vastly different. You know, think like 60 and 70 versus like three. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just massive differences. And again, it, it may not show up next month or next quarter. You know, this is, again, not a place where switching costs are low and customers instantaneously flow like water to whoever has the best offering. But I think it's one of the reasons we've been winning. I feel like we're 20% into this journey. We've laid the foundation that had to be done. Uh, and now we're just kind of ruthlessly working through it. And it's going to allow us to grow more quickly and critically be significantly more efficient, not just on a cost perspective, but in the ability to be responsive to bringing new products out. You know, product innovation in our industry has been driven in part by market volatility. The world used to be insurance agents sold insurance products, brokers sold mutual funds, and the twain didn't meet. The Fed said to banks, here's what you're allowed to pay in a savings account. And again, they didn't meet. So along come the money market mutual funds, Volcker saying we're going to stamp out inflation and driving short-term rates up dramatically. And all of a sudden, people could borrow against an old life insurance policy at 5% and either pull the cash out and drop it into a money market mutual fund at 18 or 19 or 20 at the peak. And along came a whole new type of insurance product, a short duration price universal life product that would allow people to continue to have the life insurance coverage that they needed, but be able to get a better return using these short-term duration products because interest rates were really high. That was massively transformative <laughs> to, to, to our industry kind of at the time. We've been on a secular decline in rates really since then, right? The great bull market in bonds. And there's a lot of arguments. Are we, has that broken? Are we going to see rates, long-term rates trend much higher or the deflationary forces out there of technology and globalization going to keep them low? And globalization appears to be a little bit in retreat right now, but technology sure doesn't seem to be. So we'll see, right? That's the fight kind of going on in the markets right now. But I know if, if we can bring products to market for less fixed cost, and if we can bring them quicker, we will win over time. If we can be, you know, 50 or 75% lower fixed costs by moving to a, a, a digital platform to power all of our manufactured products, and we can be really well synced up to what's going on in markets so we can risk manage, right? Because the ultimate way we risk manage all of the big stuff we're worried about is expressed through asset liability management, being rigorous about understanding our exposures to, to not just rates, but to FX, but to equities, to credit spreads, all the things that can blow a financial company up. If we can sync all that up and again, be a little bit more nimble in bringing products to market and risk managing them well, we're just going to get more share. And that's where the biggest opportunity comes. We've got a hundred million Americans who tell us when we ask them, I either don't have insurance and I know I need it, or I have some and I need more. And the question is, how do we get to them, right? How do we get to them in a way that they feel great about the experience? And, you know, 7,000 or 7,500 great agents and advisors, they just can't get to 10 or 20 or 30 million people. So this is the other great opportunity is taking all this technology and linking it up with distribution. So I'm super optimistic about this transition that, that we've been going through. And in fact, we took the technology that we built here. We're now using it 
not just transform Mass Mutual, but we've actually taken all that technology and the associated IP, and we've put it into a new sub- subsidiary called Haven Technologies. And we're now out talking globally to other insurers about how they can use this for their business. Because the other thing about our business is it's capital intensive. I couldn't write 50 million new policies next year for Mass Mutual if I wanted to in terms of the capital kind of required. So this is, this is I think, always going to be a business that has a lot of players. So we're really excited about the opportunity to build a business around our digital tools and technology. The criticism that's often leveled on the insurance industry is that it hasn't innovated. But you've just mentioned product innovation, distribution innovation. Are fintechs helping in any way this cause or are they hurting? What's your view on that? At any point in time, any established industry, particularly that's regulated, is going to look at new entrants that are doing things differently and be tempted to say they're distorting and harmful. They don't get it. They don't play by the same rules, right? But if you take the longer view, that's literally how innovation happens. (laughs) So I think they're actually very positive in how they're driving incumbents uh, to work. I actually think about how some of the established players have transformed themselves, and it's remarkable. One of the examples, you know, I do all my banking on my phone. That's done with one of the really big players. The really big players have been taking more than their share of deposits for a long time. And in the in the midst of the financial crisis, complete change in the regulation of banks and an incredibly low interest rate environment to put pressure on that interest margins, they invested in technology to allow their customers to interact with them on mobile devices. It's not like all of a sudden everybody left the four biggest banks in the United States and went to a, a small fintech startup. Those banks saw what fintechs were doing and they, they actually have been very responsive to customer demand. I'm certainly old enough, I'm not sure if you are, to remember when you couldn't get money if you couldn't go to a bank when they were open, which was rarely after four o'clock. So if you had a thing called a job, it was really hard to just go get your money, right? <laughs> and, and the banks have used technology to change that. So I, I think it's a little underappreciated how established players have been using technology to provide better customer experience. Why is that happening? It's been happening in part because new entrants in fintechs came in. And of course, there have been fortunes created and amazing companies created around some of these areas. That was one of the things from a mass mutual perspective. We sat back and looked at it. And this is where being a, a mutual company and a private company was really helpful to be able to say, okay, look at the transformation that we've seen happen in the banking sector and in the, the securities brokerage sector. Where's this puck going in terms of our piece of financial services and life insurance? And that enabled us to begin investing, frankly, with unclear payoffs and uncertain timelines when we when we did it. So I think the push of fintechs is, is generally very positive. See, I think you're, the lesson is, I think they're leading and then the big players at scale can watch much like in the banking industry, and then actually make it available on a broader scale, which is where you really make a difference, right? Yeah. The other thing that we've observed is is if you kind of look at the entire value chain, and I'll use life insurance as the example, there's an insure tech conference that goes on every year that used to have less than 100 folks go to it. And now it's thousands and thousands and thousands. And the venture investors have seen InsureTech as an opportunity. But what you're seeing is a lot of companies working at providing a solution someplace, 
right? So where was a big early focus? It was at the front end and distribution. Why was there a focus at the front end and distribution? In part because distribution got paid at time of sale, right? So when we sell our primary product, which is a participating life insurance policy, which means that you, the policy owner, owner of the company, participate through the overall mortality of the pool of people that you're kind of in cohort with, if you will, with the expenses of the overall enterprise and critically within the investment experience of the overall enterprise that we pass through. My guess is, is we'll sell somewhere between 500 and 1,000 policies today of that type. We'll hit break-even profitability sometime between 10 and 12 years from now. But they will sit on the books for between 50 and 70 years. Right, So not a surprise, where did uh, new entrants and in, in technology come in to try to make things easier was at the customer acquisition point, which gets paid at point of sale. And then now repeat that through different kind of parts of the process. We, we actually started with Haven Life thinking that way. And we quickly realized if you ended up then reverting into kind of an analog middle and back office experience, it wasn't going to work. So our, our aha moment was, oh, no, 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 we need to really build an entire digital insurance company. Um, so you've, you've seen lots of folks come in for kind of segments. There are a few that are trying to pull the whole piece together. And I think that was one of the great advantages we had as, a, as an incumbent was to do that. And we had tons of data. So we actually went and took every policy application that we received over the last 20 years, paper, digitized it to enable our, at that point, pretty new data science effort that we'd stood up to actually begin thinking about how do you build a machine learning mortality model off of this? Those were folks that we sold policies to, but actually folks that didn't even buy a policy from us. We had enough information and then you can you can follow mortality through time with the, the social security death master file. And and that 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 was an aha moment. So that's that's the one thing that a lot of new startups don't have is access to historical data at scale. And that's where incumbents can be valuable too. So that gets back to what's the other really big role of, of a CEO in this whole process. It's creating a culture that allows that to happen. Again, it's not trivial in most large traditional companies to build a culture that's going to let you do things to try to disrupt itself. We had a long history of owning asset managers and the, the difference in culture between asset management and traditional insurance was significant. Then we had a long history of, frankly, keeping them separate long enough to make sure that those cultures could be as successful as they could. We're now at the part about, okay, how do we now make sure they work, you know, kind of together? The, the culture that comes out of startups has really, you know, some really valuable attributes. And a, a challenge for, for, for folks at my seat is how do you make sure you take advantage of that? But on the other hand, how do you also take the great things about a lot of successful, long live companies. I mean, let's face it, you don't grow for 170 years from 100,000 of initial capital to 35 billion of capital because you're lousy at stuff, right? I mean, you got to have some really positive things. So how do you take those positive pieces and connect them to kind of the change agents? Again, back to your earlier point about, you know, what do CEOs have to do today? They had to talk about vision. They had to talk about purpose, right? So, you know, one of my jokes is we were a a, a, a mission-driven company before mission-driven companies were cool, right? Because it was our mission to have pop people join the company by selling policies. And, you know, think about it, but everyone made a little deal. 
the little deal was I'm going to leave a little behind for the next generation, <laughs> right? Because otherwise our business falls apart. Stop selling new policies so you don't have to deploy capital there. Stop investing in new technology for 40 years or 30 years. Things look fine and then it falls apart. But, but everybody stands on the shoulders of kind of who came before them. And that's true from a policyholder perspective. And then it's also true from an employee perspective. And guess what? When you start talking about that and telling the stories around that, people who never thought they would go to work for a mutual insurance company based in Springfield, Massachusetts, go, hey, this is actually a pretty interesting thing. I like this idea that we're going to pay it forward. And then every day, maybe we win one or two more fights for talent. Maybe someone decides to stay, someone innovates in a way that helps us instead of helping somebody else. It's such a rich thread, uh, Roger. I think just it's a good vector to this other dimension of CEO leadership. ESG has become such a prominent topic now. Maybe I'll start with the criticism of it has been that, you know, stakeholder capitalism dilutes what was the clarity of kind of shareholder capitalism, which is essentially... Is this giving CEOs and leaders of, uh, of of industries, not just insurance, an excuse to basically underperform and hide it under this notion of ESG? I'd, I'd welcome your thoughts on this because it is it's certainly a vigorous debate. It is, and, I, and frankly, I think it's a really healthy debate. Big companies that have been successful over time don't live in a vacuum, right? They live in a political system. They live in a legal system. They live in a societal system with norms, uh, and, and all those things change over time. Right? And so societal norms begin to then impact politics, which then kind of creates regulation and law. So I, I look at ESG in this kind of context. So I think they're all fair questions, right? What, what are the appropriate environmental regulations? Um, what should be done by law? What should be done by regulation? And what should be done by markets? Uh, markets. So think about the horrible Russian attack on Ukraine. Okay? There are sanctions that have been put in place, particularly in the financial sector. But you also had a bunch of companies who there weren't sanctions. Their customers said, we're going to boycott you if you continue to do business in Russia. So I, I think the vigorous debate is excellent. And again, I think this is where businesses need to be involved. But, but I keep this point of, of resource allocation in mind because let's take the environmental side and let's take carbon neutrality and, and the concern about is carbon impacting the environment. Most would say the science is fairly kind of well established. But how do you actually go about making the change? How much of it is a government regulation or law? Versus a company saying, hey, do you know what? I see the writing on the wall that hydrocarbon extraction, ultimately, the externality costs of that are going to get priced in. So I better begin thinking about how do I move my manufacturing, my production. I think those are good arguments to have. What an interesting time to be a CEO because you're, uh, you're in some ways writing the playbook for generations to come. I would like actually maybe get your perspectives on uh, one other thought. Does crypto matter for, for life insurance? In, in the really short run, no. In the long run, I, I think it could matter a lot. So again, back to this kind of longer term view of things. No one thinks about what money is. You never wake up in the morning and say, are these pieces of paper in my pocket or are these numbers in a bank account going to become worthless? We at Mass Mutual uh, 
made a small investment in Bitcoin. And one of the reasons we did it was to get into the plumbing of how, how it would work. So you know, where are the customers going? That's another reason we did it, right? So you know, the early adopters of crypto, every fiduciary said, absolutely not. This is insane. There's no way. But look, there was a time when people wouldn't invest in companies that didn't pay dividends. But I do think being involved in this conversation about how the financial system evolves is important. And if our customers have a desire to own crypto assets and have the ability to uh, to have some of their policy benefits paid in them, or if they want to have an asset allocation to it, I think it's important for us to, to listen to that. So wait and watch uh, on, on, on crypto. Well, on that note, what a fascinating conversation, Roger. Let me thank you for making the time and for sharing with us all these perspectives on the company, on the industry. As always, just a wonderful delight. Thank you so, so much. All right. Good to see you. Thank you. Bye-bye. As always, we'll share a transcript of today's discussion on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore our library of more than 100 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at inside the strategy room at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR. You can follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.